last week in our icon series, where each week we have been looking at a different icon of the faith. We've been putting them up on the altar as we explore and hear their lives and their legacy before moving them out to the sanctuary where they're hanging in the windows. And last week, I got myself in trouble because I tried to list them all off, and then I forgot one of them. So I'm not going to do that today, because there are now six of them out there, and I'm just not quite sure I can do it. And in the end, the names are not the most important thing. It is the legacy and the lessons that they have left us. For these icons of the faith and those who have gone before us in any way, shape, or form, those who perhaps we knew personally, who didn't leave a mark in the history books, but left a mark on us, have taught us something that we can employ in our own faith and encourage us as we find our way to live out God's calling in our lives. And so our final Sunday in this series, we have the chance to look at Claire of Assisi. Let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth And the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I think it would be fair to declare Claire of Assisi as the patron saint of the side eye. Now, I don't know if you can see the picture real well from where you are in the sanctuary here, or you can see her on the far right-hand side of this the screen with the images of all this, the icons we've been using. But perhaps you can, and you can see that look that she has. I think patron saint of the side eye would be appropriate. Now, it's not an official designation, of course, but there's really just no other way to describe that face in what is, in fact, a painted rendition of Claire in a fresco from the 14th century. As, we've, as I've had these images in my office before moving them up here each week, I can tell you that no matter where you, see, you might be standing in the room with this picture, Claire seems to be watching with a rather critical eye. And it's a fair summation of this commanding saint who was once described as a woman who stood in no man's shadow. Now, officially, Claire is the patron saint of television. She was uh, seriously ill for the last 27 years of her life, and so at one point, when she was bound to her room and unable to attend Mass, she had a bit of a miraculous experience where she could see and hear the worship service on the wall of her room. And so many years later, some 700 years later, a pope heard that story, thought it sounded an awful lot like television, and so she became the patron saint of television but I really can't help but think of her as the patron saint of the side eye, a saint whose intense gaze suited her complete conviction as she left everything behind to follow Jesus as she did, which is a commendable trait that seems rather out of reach for someone like me who tries to pack everything imaginable into my suitcases when taking even short trips away from home. My wife, Jennifer, has a look not unlike Claire's when she gets a glimpse of my overpacked bags waiting in the entryway to the house, ready to go for a two- or three-day trip. Now, I'm a reader, which is what gets me in the most trouble because my bags are very often weighed down with somewhere around seven completely necessary books that I need to take with me on my two- or three-day journey. Each of the seven books 
fulfilling an important purpose, you understand. There's always the novel that I want to read, the backup novel, in case I finish the book I want to read, the boring book that I want to finish but don't want to read, there's the devotional because a pastor should probably travel with a devotional, there's the book I've read before just in case I'll need something familiar, there's the book that will make me look like an intellectual when people see me reading it in the airport, and then there is one last book just in case I finish the first six books before making it home. Now let me ask you, what else am I supposed to do? Take fewer books? No, those seven are already the pared-down collection from the towering pile of books accumulated on my bedside table. The challenge is always between what can be left behind and what must be brought with me. Because we can't take it all, no, but we surely can't leave it all behind either. We need to take something with us whenever we travel, go on a journey, even if it's just a few dollars and a toothbrush. We need something for protection, for comfort, for safety. We couldn't just leave it all behind, right? And to the large crowds traveling with him, to the ones maybe who grabbed a change of clothes or a bedsheet before following after him, Jesus said, none of you who are unwilling to give up all of your possessions can be my disciple. What if he really meant that? Claire of Assisi thought he might. Claire was born in July of 1194. During the height of the Middle Ages, she was the oldest daughter of a wealthy family in Assisi, uh, which was a city in Italy. She was a religious child. She was devoted to prayer throughout her years growing up, and she was set to be married in line with the family tradition until she heard a dynamic sermon preached by Francis of Assisi the maybe familiar saint of animals who had a particular devotion to poverty. Claire was so inspired by Francis and his sermon, and the two would in fact become lifelong friends. And at the age of 18, Claire fled her home in the middle of the night, and Francis placed her in a Benedictine convent. Her father and her uncle stormed that convent to bring Claire home and to her senses. But Claire clung to the altar of that church, she threw back a veil that she was wearing to show that she had already cut her long hair short in adherence to the rules of religious life. And so she stayed, and she entered a life in the order. Now, her father was, hardly the, was the first, but hardly the last, to try to rein in Claire's commitment to following Christ. Eventually, Claire founded her own religious order of sisters who lived under a rule of poverty. They were called the Poor Ladies and then later the Poor Clares. And these sisters went barefoot, they slept on the ground, they ate no meat, they observed almost complete silence, and they owned no possessions, living on daily contributions from the community around them. She wrote a set of rules to help guide their religious life, the first set of rules ever written by a woman to be adopted for religious order. And she would later lessen some of the harder ones, the physical limitations, writing in a letter once that our bodies are not made of brass, but she never wavered in her commitment to complete poverty. Every pope throughout her lifetime tried to lessen the order's radical adherence to poverty, but Claire remained steadfast. It seems that she thought Jesus might have really meant it when he said, none of you who are unwilling to give up all of your possessions can be my disciple. 
It's probably not surprising that popes and anyone else encountering this sentiment might wonder if we could walk it back a bit. Whoever comes to me and doesn't hate father and mother, spouse and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even one's own life cannot be my disciple, Jesus said. But surely Jesus didn't mean to disrupt families and homes like that. Surely Jesus meant something less radical. Jesus lands his point, but we keep preaching it back just a bit. As one longtime churchgoer said of their preacher, we know when he's done, but that doesn't mean he stops. And so Jesus is done, but we keep going. We keep taking what seems like a straightforward point, and we turn it all over, looking for hidden meaning. Perhaps it is hyperbole to make the more reasonable point that we could do with fewer belongings. That sounds better. But it really seems like Jesus might mean what he says. Now, sure, there's some room for nuance in the use of the word hate. There's a lot of room for nuance there. And the language makes it clear that hate in this context is held in contrast to love. Jesus is not encouraging us to loathe our families or resent our own selves, but he is asking for a love of God that might sometimes eclipse what would otherwise be the best or safest choice for ourselves and for our loved ones. The cost of discipleship here is putting the vision of God's own kingdom ahead of our kingdoms of family and home and self. It's a steep price. And as much as we'd like to work in a discount, Jesus seems to think that it's important that it be presented to us in full at the outset. Like the builder of the tower and the commander of the armies, it's foolish to begin without the chance to weigh our options and make sure we're willing to pay the price. And so Jesus turns to the crowd and he presents the bill. Every possession they own, every relationship they cherish, even life itself. Because where would we carry a cross except to our own crucifixion? It almost doesn't matter what it's for when the cost is that high. Who would take that deal? And yet we do. We do sometimes more begrudgingly than others, but we do. We offer it all up because to follow Jesus is to be free. Freed from the belongings we thought would protect us but actually bind us. Freed from trying to please everyone to please instead only God. Freed from pretending to be perfect to then walk on the path of perfection. Freed from all the things that kept us held in one static life to step into a life lived to the full. It's almost a painfully high price, but one that should not be walked back because to free ourselves of what we have is to open our hands the invaluable gift Christ has to offer. To the very first pope who tried to lessen her and her order's commitment to poverty, Claire said, I need to be absolved from my sins, but I do not wish to be absolved from the obligation of following Jesus Christ. Claire wanted nothing else but to follow Christ, and she would hold to nothing else. 
We become what we love, she wrote once, and who we love shapes what we become. If we love things, we become a thing. If we love nothing, we become nothing. Far better to love God. And while we may be inclined to worry that we won't have what we need if we leave it all behind, worry that perhaps we should or could hold on to just a few essentials, letting go of everything doesn't mean that we go forward with nothing, and rather the opposite. To take up the cross is to go in the direction that Jesus is going, and so to go in the grace and the love of God. Now go calmly in peace, Claire said once, for you have a good escort. To let go of what we have is to open our hands to receive that gift of going on the way that Christ went before us. To walk in the path of the cross. And so Claire remained steadfast through her life, to having nothing, so she might have everything. And her religious order of the poor Claire's exists still today. But this may not be an invitation for us all to go out and join a religious order that requires absolute poverty in that way. Perhaps there may be a different way for us all to adhere to the same poverty, yet in different ways. Fred Craddock, the preacher, told a story once about a man who went to his priest with a check for $50,000 that he had made out to the church. And he'd handed it to the priest, and the priest looked at it. It was a lot of money. And the priest took that check and handed it back to the man, and he said to him, Take this check, go and cash it. Cash it in for quarters or dollar bills. And I want you to spend it 50 cents or a dollar at a time doing the Lord's work. And the man, now holding the check he had tried to give to the priest, said, but that will take the rest of my life. And the priest said, that's right. That's the point. This is a way of taking up your cross and following Jesus. Anyone who is unwilling to give up all of their possessions, Jesus said, cannot be my disciple. And so the invitation, the incredibly high price to pay, is to let go of everything, to receive everything. Thanks be Friends, as we continue in worship, I invite you to 